All right, we're we're recording. Kyle, thank you so much for being here. Um, I really appreciate it. We uh, it took us, I want to say, a good six months to get this thing going. Um, we've been talking, uh, maybe even a little longer than that, but it had to get a approval, and um, I wanted to chat a little bit about that too, and kind of why it took so long. Uh, I think it was a good reason, though. And I want to get a little background on you and, and background on the Hickoria. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of uh, telling us about yourself and what you do. Sure. Uh, so my name is Kyle Tater. I'm a, I grew up in, in the area. I grew up in Dulce, and, and uh, my parents were teachers. So um, this is home to me. I am not a tribal member, but, uh, you know, everything that I do here uh, I do it for those reasons along the lines of, you know, trying to make this place uh, better. So um, growing up here, it's really hard not to love wildlife. This is north central New Mexico, uh, 850,000 acres of, of reservation that uh, is very rich in a variety of resources, um, you know, from from the soil to the wildlife that are on the landscape, everything about this place is uh, is, is pretty amazing. Um, it lends itself to uh, to have abundant wildlife, elk and deer primarily, but we also have very healthy populations of things like golden eagles and falcons and um, you name it, you know, across the board. So I have the, the honor, privilege, and huge responsibility of managing wildlife on the reservation um, something that I dreamed of doing as a kid. Never really thought I would come back to do it, but I'm living my dream essentially at the moment. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a wonderful thing for sure. Um, you know, we, we had been talking about doing this podcast for a mm -hmm. while. And, uh, you know, at first I'll be honest, it wasn't something that I thought we were going to, you know, be too excited about doing. But the more that I... Why uh, is that? Well, it's... Um, we're, we're pretty quiet. We're pretty humble about what we do. We just go to work and do what we do. Right. So, yeah. um, we've done a few other podcasts and for, you know, trying to reach objectives or selling a hunt or, you know, something along those lines. But what, what flipped it for me was I really wanted, uh, an opportunity. And I think, uh, a podcast is a really great opportunity to disseminate good information, accurate information, timely information, um, and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm embracing it. I think this is a good thing. Yeah, most definitely. What, what is your official title? Well, uh, on my business card, it says wildlife biologist, but, um, you know, there's a lot of other things that we do. It's a small department, so we wear multiple hats, but my title is wildlife biologist. And, and with that, what, what are the different hats that you wear? <clears throat> well, um, today I was running a skid steer and, you know, uh, <laughs> You know, it just depends on the day, but uh, that's what another thing that I love about the job is every day is a little different. You know, there's a lot of shared responsibility. And like I said, we all sort of get to work and do the right thing because we want this place to function and, and uh, succeed. Yeah. Um, so as a wildlife biologist um, and, you know, working a skid steer <laughs> and doing everything kind of in between, uh, is there is there a part of the job that you really just... Uh, you know, would do for, I mean, just do for free. I mean, what are you really passionate about as far as, as what you do here? Well, uh, 
yeah, don't tell my bosses this, but I'd probably do all of it for very <laughs> not I, I, uh, I genuinely love what I do, but um, I would say that where my heart is has always been in uh, elk and deer, deer primarily. Um, something about deer, they're challenging, you know, they're, uh, they're culturally important here. Throughout the West, they're struggling. Um, there's a lot of things that, 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 uh, that make deer uh, uh, important to me personally, but also to the tribe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hickory Apache Nation is uh, one of the destinations in the world for big, mature mule deer. Mm-hmm. It's a it's something that we take pride in, something that we've uh, done for a long time, and it it just didn't happen uh, by accident. It came from years of management and you know our our uh, predecessors, you know, laying the framework and and fighting through challenges. And you know, uh, though this place intrinsically has some incredible resources, it it also has a a slew of challenges, just like every other you know, scenario or place. Mm-hmm. Was there somebody like, uh, you said your predecessors, was there a group of people or a particular person that said, Hey, um, we want the Hickory to be known for trophy mule deer or trophy elk. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I think the story is best told. Um, you know, we have to know where we've been and know where we're going. Um, so in the fifties, the reservation has always been rich in its resources, wildlife-wise. It's been a destination for, for a long time. Um, in the 50s, uh, the, the Game and Fish Department was formed, but there was a lot of confusion. There was co-management with the state. There was the federal government was involved. Um, and that was uh, uh, confusing, to say the least. And... Uh, led to some some maybe not bad decisions but decisions that were shared and uh you know didn't have a very clear vision i guess of where to go and where what they wanted mm-hmm. um there was some conflict in those days and in the late 70s early 80s um that conflict continued to rise and um with neighboring jurisdictions and you know the uh, states and you know who who has jurisdiction over what so in 1982 um there's actually a Supreme Court ruling, uh, Mescalero versus um, the state of New Mexico. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Mescalero, which gave all tribes the sovereign power to manage their own wildlife within their reservations. Hmm. Huge game changer, right? So um, it, it clarified the roles of, you know, who had who can do what and on where. And um, Hickory jumped at that opportunity and hired their first uh, full-time wildlife biologist, professional wildlife biologist. Um, they hired a full-time staff that, you know, they had, they already had sort of a, uh, the fringes of staff and people in place, but it really became organized and we really haven't looked back since. Mm, so okay. that was the turning point in my mind. And, and those folks from that era, some of them are still working here. Um, some of them uh, have recently retired, but those are the guys that really were the were the the thinkers and the guys that. Uh, That's cool. That uh, like uh, my analogy is, you know, I'm riding a broke horse. I'm just making sure that we're I don't get 
tossed off the horse and making sure we're pointing in the right direction, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, my predecessor's name was Tom Watts. Tom Watts did many, many years here. He made some incredible decisions. He had staff, uh, Udane Vicente, who was our past director, uh, Larson Pansy, you just met Larson. You know, mm-hmm. these folks have been here. Um, Joe Muniz has been long retired, but, you know, folks that were incredible uh, uh, and, and did a lot of good for the tribe in, in those beginning years and really set the framework for where we are today. Mm. Um, so I always uh, remind folks today, like, let's, let's honor and respect that generation because that, that's, that was very challenging, yeah. very challenging era for sure. That's great. Um, they do they live close by? Are they? Yeah, still, they're all still, still around? around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, That's around. great. And they're all are they the, the the people that you mentioned? Are they all tribal members or some of them wildlife biologists? Or? Yeah, Tom was uh, is a non-member, um, mm. but everyone else is a tribal member. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow, that's a that's a cool story. So in '82, huh? That's kind of when the the page flipped. Yes, sir. '82 was was uh, for all uh, tribal lands. Uh-huh. That, that care about their wildlife resource, that's when things changed. Nice. Is there another um, organization res- or uh, uh, nation, uh, I don't know what the proper uh, people's nation or uh, reservation in, in New Mexico and or that you know of in the lower 48 that manages a similar to how you manage here? Yeah, there are uh, uh, many. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I could try to list them all, but I think I'd forget a few. But some of the ones that come to mind in New Mexico in particular, uh, Mescalero's always done it. You know, in 1982, they're the ones that pushed the envelope to mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. Um, they have a, a organized program. Um, I, uh, I came from Acoma, Pueblo of Acoma. That's where I did my uh, grad research mm-hmm. and got my master's degree studying their elk. Um, today, they run a very... Uh, higher end, you know, uh, program hunting and management and, uh, you know, the, uh, there's others, you know, and like I said, I don't want to exclude anyone, but those two come in mind in New Mexico, Arizona has white mountain, San Carlos, Wallapai, you know, mm-hmm. they're, some of the best resources and management, in my opinion, in North America are on tribal lands. Wow. Um, and it's it's often you know for for a sportsman it's often overlooked because of you know the regular uh, state draws and state agencies and people tend to not look at tribal lands hmm. as a potential destination if you will for for hunting or fishing um, you know and uh, I think that's starting starting to slowly change mm-hmm. um, but you know it, it is it, we're able to manage. Uh, um, for what we feel is important mm-hmm. and how we want to do things. And it's, it's, it's a really cool place to work. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What, um, I, not that you're insinuating that, 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 you know, tribal lands are better than state lands, but it sounds like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like from what you're saying that there's a, maybe a little bit more passion, a little bit more effort on, on some tribal lands versus states or. Well, I mean, I'm definitely not saying uh, that, that, you know, we all have our own issues or or resources or lack thereof or stakeholders or, you know, and and the way I view, um, you know, like what we do here on the reservation is uh, we have a pretty clear vision of 
of what we are and where we want to go. Mm-hmm. I think that's super important. Um, you know, we're willing to do, to sacrifice things in order to gain these uh, objectives. You know, we, we, we like quality. We like great hunting experiences. Um, so we, there's trade-offs there, right? So, um, you know, the strategy of we could get everybody a tag every year and everyone can go hunting, the experience may suffer. Mm. Or we could, uh, you know, go every other year or hold draws or have limited entries or, and, and the folks that have those tags are going to be blown away because of how many animals they see or the quality they see. Mm-hmm. So our strategy is certainly a quality management versus a quantity of licenses. Um, and it's worked. It's worked for a long time. I see. Now, just me not, yeah, of course, being a, a biologist or knowing how to manage, um, I'm learning more and more as I talk to more uh, biologists, though. What makes you so special? And because you are. I mean, I walked in here and it's like, like I just said, when I walked in your office, I was like, wow, this place is a museum. You heard me say that. And it is. I mean, some of the biggest uh trophies uh, for mule deer specifically uh, I've seen some I mean some good stuff down there for elk too but I haven't I've, I don't think I've ever seen some stuff like this in my life um, what makes the hickoria so special why how is it why is it managed this way or how is it managed it that way yeah so great question I think to me it, it's a combination of a variety of things but um, our natural strength is the land and it starts there. Mm-hmm. You know, there are places that may have similar intent, but the land just can't support it. You know, they may want giant mule deer, but they just don't have the resources to do it. They they want, you know, certain things, and it's just not feasible. Mm-hmm. So north central New Mexico is rich. And like I said earlier, uh, you know, from the soil to the, the vegetation communities to the, uh, you know, the topographic relief that if winters get too bad, animals can keep moving and in, in find relief, you know, lower elevation relief. Um, though these days uh, we're not getting the snows like we used to, but, you know, that's what makes this place strong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a result, wildlife populations flourish. But the other side of that is the social side. You know, what? how do you achieve your objectives even though you have this incredible resource, you, you have to all be on the same page for one. Mm. So that's been consistent through time since the 80s or even prior to that is uh, tribal leadership uh, wants quality. They support uh, this department and the efforts that we try to do um, on an annual basis. Mm. Super important. It's also fairly rare, you know, as terms change and, you know, when people change and ideas change, you know, that's one thing that's very refreshing about Hickoria is it's been a very consistent uh, goal is, um, you know, let's, this is what we want. You know, we want abundant wildlife. We want healthy wildlife. We want healthy landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, so what makes us special is a combination of a lot of things, but, um, you know, like I said earlier, even though all we, we have all these things in our favor, there are challenges and and that's part of my job is to navigate the biological environmental and you know those type of challenges that that we face on a year-to-year basis Mm -hmm. um you know to me it's 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 an incredible um 
place for the two reasons I mentioned, but it's also uh, like I feel like there's an elevated responsibility on me to make sure that we're making the best decisions possible. So what I what we've done since the 80s and, and even now, I mean, we're, we're constantly trying to learn more. And there's a lot of freedom there for a biologist, someone like me that has a question, you know, and mm-hmm. that's what I absolutely love about working for, for Hickoria is if I have a question, I can answer it. There's very little red tape. Um, for example, you know, trying to update our knowledge base on migration, for example, mm-hmm. um, survival rates, uh, impacts to drought, you know, things like that. You know, how you do that is oftentimes uh, fairly costly uh, coloring studies and efforts like that. It, you know, I, I haven't had any pushback, not not an ounce of, you know, it, basically it's saying go do it. Nice. Which is, that's what makes us different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have a lot, it sounds like you have a lot of support. A lot of support, a lot of freedom, uh, a lot of trust. And mm-hmm. with that comes incredible responsibility on myself to, yeah. to get it done. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I think uh, from talking to, to the state quite a bit, I mean, I've done quite a few with the state now, luckily, and uh, great people. Um, but I do hear some, uh, you know, just we chat uh, casually about uh, funding and uh, having to go through certain channels to get certain things done. Um, and I don't know that they have a lot of resistance, but it, it definitely seems like you, you push to an open door. Sure. And that. Uh not saying we have unlimited funds. That's yeah. That's not the case at all. It's it's just uh, we're able to prioritize our work, um, and uh, you know focus our resources on on things that we feel are going to provide the most benefit to the resource or to the knowledge base. Cool. Um, I want to uh, kind of focus in like a little bit on on mule deer in particular for a little bit. Now, uh, my background, uh, is axis deer, um, you know, pig, uh, Hawaii, like that landscape. This is real new to me. My first, uh, season, uh, hunting elk was last season. And, uh, man, it was, it was amazing to be around such an animal that's so vocal and so social, so big and so uh I keep using the word regal just just a regal animal something you know uh it, unless you're there and hearing them and being in their environment and seeing them operate you you there's no way to even really describe it um and that i feel like when you're in that environment it's a little easier to kind of just i think it's a lot of it has to do with how social they are and how big they are and just you're able to see a lot more and experience a lot more Big mule deer are, uh, uh, I mean, for me, they're recluse. They're they're harder to understand, especially, like you say, you're here. You get to see them quite a bit. I, I would take it. You enter ear biologist with them, and you get to interact with them and see their behavior. Someone like me, who's you know a hunter who's not around them a lot, we have so many questions. You know, I I don't see them often. I find them to be very mysterious. When, when you do see one and one that's so big, you usually don't see them for long. And, and even then, they're, they're just hard to, uh, especially on public land and with the state, hard to find and that kind of thing. So um, given your experience and, you know, being around them so much, can you give us kind of a, just an overview on mule deer and their behaviors? 
Sure. Um, so especially, uh, and especially like the, the ones that you're known for here, the, the, the big ones. Right. So uh, to me, it, you know, the, the big ones, they're all special. I mean, whether it's a, a doe or a, you know, a buck that's mature, that isn't a giant, you know, they're all special for their own reasons. Um, and like I alluded to earlier, mule deer are facing a variety of challenges throughout their ranges. So, um, you know, if you're a mule deer fanatic, it, if you're not aware of those challenges, then I would say, you know, educate yourself, or maybe we can talk about some of those challenges today. But um, in a nutshell, um, mule deer have two objectives in life, to reproduce and survive. And how they do that, uh, you know, wherever the range is, is, is sort of based on the, the resources they have available. But really all deer, or mule deer, I should say, are uh, wired the same. They are extremely uh, loyal to their landscape. In my mind, they are incredible indicators of habitat quality because of their uh, foraging strategy. So if mule deer aren't doing good, look at habitat because more than likely habitat is a little out of whack versus uh, an elk, for example. What I mean by that is a, a mule deer diet, it's, it has evolved uh, to eat high-quality foods, and uh, they're called concentrate selectors. So they would eat small amounts of high-quality foods, right? Mm. Um, so if that's not happening on the landscape for whatever reason, early successional species of plants, uh, disturbance, you know, across the landscape, we've been putting out fires for a long time, you know, that type of stuff that resets succession and, and creates a diverse landscape, a resilient landscape. Mule deer thrive on that. Mm. Um, whereas an elk could, I, I joke about it and I don't, you know, I think it's true, but you know, they could probably eat a piece of cardboard and be fine because of how they, they've evolved, right? They can, they have a, a, a bigger room and they're able to digest, you know, lower quality foods, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. uh, more grass eaters than a deer, which would be more browse, forbs, you know, early successional grasses, things like that. So, mm -hmm. um, to me, that's what makes them really cool and special. And if you understand their foraging strategy, you'll understand their life history. You'll understand basically everything you need to know about a mule deer based on their objective of, first of all, feeding themselves for the bigger overarching objective of reproducing and surviving. Mm. So, um, you know, just general behavior. I mean, here on the reservation, um, you know, the rut is right about now, you know, from Thanksgiving to... Uh, you know, mid-December, you know, fawning would then be in, you know, May, mid-May to, you know, July type time frame, depending on circumstances of the rut. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on a on really good year, the, the cool thing about deer is, you know, when things are bad, they'll let you know. When things are good, they'll also let you know. You know, twins can be common on a really high nutrition year, which is cool. super awesome. You know, other uh, ungulates just don't do that, you know, deer you're able to do that so you know what my fascination with deer is 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 because of their how tied they are to the land and how connected they are to the land um you know they'll let me know how i'm doing or, or things that need to get corrected or things that are outside of our control but you know you know drought for example or um you know things that that are outside of management control so 
my job would then be to implement management that uh, that I can control. You know, how do I, how can I help a mule deer reproduce and survive? Mm-hmm. And basically, everything we do and we put in place has that sort of overarching thought behind it of, you know, how is this helping deer, and how is it helping in in this in this aspect? Um, the more we understand about migration, the more we understand about connectivity and making sure that habitat isn't fragmented and lost and habitats aren't getting too old and um, becoming degraded to the point where we need to do something about it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So everything about deer lends itself towards uh, you need diversity, you need resilience across the landscape, you need um, uh, a lot of the things, you know, on a 850,000 acres that will make a huge difference in a mule deer's life, whether they're a resident of the reservation year round or, you know, migrate to high country and, uh, and try to make a living in that life strategy. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating, you know? And, uh, so I may not have covered behavior in particular, but no, that's okay. You know, that, Sounds like they keep you on your toes though. Oh yeah. No, that's, that's part of the challenge and the, and the respect for mm-hmm. sure for, for deer is, uh, fascinating critters. Yeah. Is it true that some of the, the, the bigger, like more quality, the older uh, age class, they're more nocturnal? You won't see them a lot during the day or? So you got to think about, okay, what, what does it take to attain maturity, right? So how many years of learning on the landscape does it take? Mm. We're all products of our environment, right? So uh, an old mule deer buck, um, you know, to me, they start getting in that, wow, you know, age class, about five, hmm. um, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We've killed bucks here in the 12 plus age frame, which is ancient. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, they're, they're wired to reproduce and survive. So the older they get, the smarter they get. There's no doubt about it. And um, mule deer love cover. You know, they're, they, that's something that we have to manage for and the reservation's full of cover, you know, any, every, uh, habitat component here on the reservation has a cover component that's healthy for deer mm-hmm. and, um, which lends itself to growing old bucks. They can escape predators. They can escape hunters. They can, uh, make a living, you know, in, in, in the way a mule deer does, you know, and, uh, I do think. You know, I, I give a lot of thought to, or I guess gratitude, I guess, to the bucks that make it to that age class because it's pretty admirable mm. um, because a lot of times the odds are not in their favor. Um, so, you know, to me, a trophy buck, and again, trophy is relative, but I always look at age. You know, if, if we have an old buck that has survived on this landscape, to me, that's a trophy because, like I said, the odds are in, not in their favor, whether it's a coyote, a fence, a barking dog, a highway, um, you know, a hunter, you name it, Yeah. you know, it, it, uh, you know, the first year of life, super challenging, you know, lots of mortality can happen in that first year of life. And, uh, you know, you got to repay respect to the, to the ones that can, that can do it. So trying to create an environment that they can do it in and, mm-hmm. uh, that, that lends itself towards uh, maturity and abundance. That's part of our strategy for sure. Yeah, that sounds good. And that brings me around kind of to, to like predator management. Do you have a lot of lions and, and bears here on uh, on the reservation? Yeah, 
you know, when you have a prey base, you're going to have predators, and that's that's uh, another value, you know, a wildlife value that we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we uh, we keep constant pressure on things like coyotes and mountain lions and black bears, and it's all managed, you know, a needs-based management program. A lot of a lot of folks will ask me, uh, you know, you know, how do we get our mule deer back? And, and one of the things that they always want to do first, without really looking at it is well we need to start shooting coyotes and i would say yeah that's probably a good good place to start but you know i always like to tell the story of oh the mid 80s where the first telemetry study was done here and they were trying to figure out what was limiting the deer herd they they knew that they had the the habitat they knew they had the resources what was limiting it right so they put out a bunch of collars and in those days the collars uh, the technology wasn't that great but um they were finding mortalities, right? So mm-hmm. mortality events on bucks, does, whatever they had collared, and uh, came up with a, uh, a a good feeling of what was limiting. And it was by far, uh, from a natural mortality standpoint, it, would, it was coyotes. Really? So in those days, they said, okay, well, we can do something about that. And they uh, started implementing a coyote management program um, a lot of which is still alive today and, and has been working for us uh, since that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, so, coyotes. <laughs> coyotes. Yeah. Sorry, we had to press pause for a second. We had a uh, a stomper. that's all right uh yeah we're talking about coyotes you know what's interesting about coyotes though is that i always thought like i i think about coyotes and i think about wolves and i wanted to ask you about that too if you have wolves here but i always never thought that a coyote would be as threatening to deer um and elk but i guess i'm wrong you're wrong yeah coyotes (laughs) coyotes are uh uh you know obviously you know they'll they'll eat they're opportunistic but um, again, if there's prey availability, they're going to capitalize on, on what they have. And, um, you know, a, a group of coyotes, uh, can be, can be pretty harmful on, uh, even an adult elk, you know, really? we've seen it happen. Hmm. Um, definitely adult deer, no problem. Um, but really the, the risk is, you know, the, the neonates or the young juveniles, you know, that type of age class that, uh that uh, a coyote in particular will will focus in on. So will a, a black bear, or so will a mountain lion. You know, opportunistic, again, their objective is to reproduce and survive as well. So right. um, it just comes down to what, what you're managing for and what's important to you, you know, on the landscape and making sure that uh, that we're, like I said, we're, we're, we're putting things in place that are to achieve a specific objective. And in this case... Uh, abundant mule deer herd is something that that we're that we're focused on right now staying on coyotes for a second um coyotes are about the size of a kind of a medium-sized dog right would you say or a bigger dog well i mean you know a mastiff can weigh 160 pounds and and, you know that's what i'd call an exceptional dog so a big coyote in my mind is 40 pounds oh 40 pounds okay so that's the size of a what uh uh like a pointer like a, sure. like a pointer or something. Yeah. So, um, and the reason why I'm on this is because I want to see 
I want to see a lot of deer on landscape. I want to see a lot of elk. And I, I, I never thought that coyotes were that big of a problem um, for maybe the adult species because I didn't know, and this is just me not knowing, I didn't know that they ran kind of in herds, or not I say herds, but more packs like, like wolves do. I thought they were kind of a little bit more solitary and I could be wrong in that. So my thought was that they prey more, like you were saying, on the... Um, the what would you call it? not neonates or newborns neonates yep. right so would they be a problem like you were saying they they sometimes can be a problem and run together in in like two three maybe even more than that and take down an elk yeah we've, a, a coyote yeah we've seen wow okay it's interesting fairly common it's okay um you know and like i said it, it, it i i've been uh People have have questioned that for sure, but when you see, yeah, it, I just don't know. Like, yeah, no, it, it happens. For okay, sure. and do you have wolves? No, you don't have any wolves. Okay, gotcha. You know, so you don't see the Mexican wolf up this way at all. That's nope. interesting. Nope. Uh, again, if you're managing for a specific resource, you know that would contradict some of our objectives. Absolutely. Absolutely, hundred percent. So yeah. it's something that that um, you know we. We, like I said, it's a multiple use, multiple use landscape. It's something that uh, you know they can they can have on the south end of the state, but it's something north central New Mexico, or at least the Hickoria, is not interested in having. Got it. Um, for a variety of reasons, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess we'll leave it at that. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, the next uh, predator. Uh, so the, as far as predators are concerned, the, the biggest threat to deer uh, would be, would you say coyotes or lions or bears? Uh, it depends on the landscape. If we're talking hickoria, I would say uh, probably coyotes would be the first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then mountain lions. Mm. And, you know, bears for mule deer in particular, I would say it's, it's fairly low. What about for elk? Uh, Same thing. No, I would say, uh, you know, somewhere in that. If we're ranking risks, you know, but um, you know, a mule deer or I'm sorry, a black bear on a uh, you know a elk calving ground can be uh, pretty detrimental. It's been proven in New Mexico. Yeah, many wreak havoc. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, it, that'll actually limit a population. Um, it's happened other places. It, to our knowledge, it's. I'm sure it's happening at some level. But again, we're we manage. You know, even black bears, we have spring hunts, we have fall hunts. Gotcha. Um, you know, it's something that. Uh, you know, it, it's not that we disrespect or dislike any of these predators. You know, like coyotes, they have their role. I mean, good luck trying to remove them anyway. They'll always be here. Yeah. Um, Mountain lions, obviously highly charismatic, really cool animals. Um, yeah. You know, they, they serve their ecological role, and it's just something that we're aware of that we don't want to uh, create an impact that limits, you know, an elk or a deer population. Sure. And then table fare, too. I heard that the lions are pretty good as far as... I've never had any, but I've, I've heard that the table fare is good. Is that I, true? So I had heard that, and, oh, about a month and a half ago... Um, <laughs> There was a, a funny looking hamburger on, you know, where I was at a barbecue and I thought it was pork. And um, I eventually asked, I said, you know, what is that? Because I know it wasn't 
beef or elk <laughs> or stuff that I'm used to. Yeah. And it was a mountain lion burger, and, and it was good. Really? Yeah. Uh, what did it taste like? Did it taste like pork? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, that's what everyone's it's just not greasy you know pork can be kind of greasy mm-hmm. uh, same texture for sure same color um, but but it was good maybe cleaner kind of like a cleaner tasting i don't know um nah i mean it, it had its own taste like when people say pork i think of like a pork chop um i think the texture was similar it was mild it was good i see i see gotcha yeah. cool and then you eat bear too Have you, i've never you? had bear Really, me either. Yeah, I hear bears good too. Yeah, I, I mean, trichinosis freaks me out a little bit. And um, anyway, maybe someday, but not. <laughs> you just gotta cook it. My... Yeah, you gotta cook it good. That's sort of, from what I understand, and also uh, from what I, I've, you know, people have told me it depends on what they're eating too. You know, like if it's like spring and they're eating berries and that. Then, sure. If you're yeah. in Alaska and they're eating blueberries all day. I'm sure it's way different than a dumpster diving black bear in somewhere in the West. Yeah, yeah. or like a grizzly eating salmon or something. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, man, that's uh it's nice to to have that background on like a little bit of how you look at things and how you you have respect for everything even the coyote. You know, like you have respect for everything, but your focus is trying to carry on a tradition here in, you know, keeping quality mule deer. Now that's mule deer as comparing the, the, the reputation that you have for mule deer versus elk, very similar. Cause I hear a lot about elk too. So our, our reputation for mule deer, I, I think we should preface it with all of our hunts. The objective first is tribal member harvest and, and maintaining quality hunts for tribal membership first. Mm-hmm. We are able to do that and then capitalize on any remaining, uh, quota of licenses and and we have earned a reputation through decades of fantastic hunts mm-hmm. you know mule deer obviously it's super limited we only have issued 12 tags to non-member uh, hunters for mule deer so mm-hmm. um they're also you know uh, uh, kind of an exclusive deal you know like not everyone's going to be able to draw for one but um we do make revenue off of these non-member hunts so um, sort of the other side of that coin is we offer a ton of hunts for elk. Oh, really? Um, anything from archery bull to uh, fill the freezer cow tags to you name it, you know, and anything in between rifle bull hunts. We offer a variety of elk hunts. And we're not known for, you know, the trophy Boone and Crockett bull elk. Mm-hmm. You know, we're definitely known for uh, trophy Boone and Crockett mule deer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't think we've ever entered a bull elk in the Boone and Crockett record book here. I mean, I could be wrong, but um, we're not known for that. We're known for really fun, exciting, quality hunts, though. I see. Um, and, and the same objective is uh, is in place for elk, is we want maturity, we want abundance, um, you know, as the resource allows. So we've mm-hmm. got to make sure that we're in balance with habitat and, you know, elk, like I said earlier, they're more habitat generalists. So we've got to be careful with how many elk we have on the landscape, especially when things like drought hit. Yeah. You know, there's things that we need to do to, to make sure that we're not overdoing habitats uh, with the the main objective of keeping deer on the landscape, healthy deer. So, I see. Um, <clears throat> Are you able to expound on uh, your, how, like your pricing or no? Or does that change quite a bit? 
No, I mean, uh, it's all on our website. It's on the web proclamation. Oh, it, tell, it tells you exactly what, what yeah. is what. Oh, okay. I mean, it, you know, we it's what the region, the market is. Mm-hmm. Really, it's not, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about the reservation. Like, you have to be a millionaire to hunt here, which is That's certainly, what I've heard. Not, <laughs> certainly not the case. Yeah. Um, no, I, we have a variety of hunts, different price levels and like uh, anyone that's that's listening that might be interested in that just go to our website hickoryhunt.com and you'll find what you need to find there i see so more abundance of elk and then more just limited non-tribal members for for, for mule deer sure hunting opportunity yep. Mm-hmm. yep gotcha that's that's good that you um you kind of uh made a distinction there between tribe tribal members versus non-tribal members it's uh, like a, a much larger percentage of hunts for tribal members versus non-correct. That is correct. Yep. Got it. Um, so how long have you been here? How long have you been with uh, Hickoria? Uh, let's see. It'll be, I'm going on 12 years now. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And aspirations as far as uh, your goals for being here, are you in the position that you want to be in or are there uh, other things that you feel like you uh, any goals for the reservation or anywhere else that you feel like you, you, uh, you know, me personally, n- no, I'm exactly where I need to be. I, I feel like this is where exactly where I need to be to be the most benefit to the tribe. Um, and to achieve the objectives of, of what I want to do, you know, and it, 12 years went pretty fast. I can, t- I can say that. Good for you, man. A lot of people can't say that. A lot of people are like, you know, not in the place where they they want to be. They either have aspirations or goals or wish they could go back and maybe do something different. You know, you're you're sitting pretty. No, I I'm at peace with with, Good for you. with a lot of things. Yeah. No, I, I like I said, I'm blessed. I'm lucky. This is uh, when I was a little boy growing up here. Um, I thought game and fish was the coolest thing on earth, and you know going to college and, you know, all the things that, that sort of led me down the path that, that led me back home. Like I said, I never really thought I'd come back. Um, so no, I, it, it's a, it's a blessing. You know, a lot of, I'm also of the belief that things happen for a reason and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy to be here and happy to, uh, you know, to do the things that I do and be able to do the things I, that I do. It's, it's a really cool fit. That's awesome. So you're you're a hunter as well. I love hunting. Yep. Okay, well, favorite like a favorite big game. Oh, well, that's hard. Uh, whichever one I'm hunting is probably the answer. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm a public land primarily hunter. I, I did a ton of guiding in my earlier years, and um, I'd love everything about hunting. It's something that I grew up doing, and you know, part of my being and I think um you know I'm teaching my kids now you know to be hunters and how to do things right and I think it's a really uh really great way to connect to the land and also to uh to feed your family and and be grateful for the things you have and you know it's it's everything about it is 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 awesome mm-hmm. I've said that too uh there's a I, in every podcast, I swear I mention it, and I can never kind of put my finger on why it is so special other than this, the feeling that you get. But I've always said that it teaches you a lot being out there. Sure. No, I, you know, it's not easy, right? And this is the lesson that I give my boys. I have four boys. Mm-hmm. So if you're, 
if you're out on the on on a hunt and and things go easy, you know you're grateful for the opportunity. But most of the time, especially public land, like it's just a, not the case. You know you're working hard and there's highs and lows. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obstacles you have to overcome, and sometimes there's heartache or you know lack of success. And you know you you kind of have to build a plan for next time. You live and learn and and move forward. Such is life, mm-hmm. right? A lot of parallels to how you live and approach life. So I think it's much bigger to me anyway um, than just going out and, you know, bloodlusting and shooting something. Yeah. You know, maybe when I was much younger, that was the objective. But these days it's, you know, conservation. You know, when you buy a license, you're funding conservation. Um, It's really a full circle thing for me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, trying to teach future generations to take care of, of, you know, to respect it. And, you know, if you respect something, you'll take care of it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, um, you have a, 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 like you said, you're sitting pretty here and you're in a good spot and, uh, you have an abundance of game and not just, I mean, you have your challenges, which, which we can get to, but, uh, for the public land hunter who is, uh, for example, I was, you know, I say always, but I bring up Washington a lot, the state of Washington, because they're having some issues as far as, you know, um, you know, certain people wanting to take away some of the hunting privileges, if not all of them in some cases. Um, what would you tell somebody, <clears throat> I pose this question a lot, so I'm smiling a little bit, but, and I get, I get all kinds of different answers, but uh, the base of the, the, the responses are usually the same, but I love to hear the responses on this. And that is, what would you tell somebody who wanted to take hunting away for whatever reason, um, whether it's they were uh, they don't want any animals killed? For example, I had a uh, podcast with somebody from PETA uh, recently, and it was a, my only uh, phone podcast because they w- I don't say they wouldn't meet with me, but it was tough, you know, trying to meet with them. So I was like, all right, let's just do it over the phone. And it actually it went a lot longer than I thought. To me, it went a lot better than I thought as well, but I couldn't, I don't say I was trying to, to turn him uh, and make him a hunter or anything like that, but I wanted him to understand. And I don't know at the end of the day that he really did, but what would you tell somebody like that who wanted to take away hunting um, um, opportunities for people? Um, that's pretty foreign around here, so... You know, I like to live in my bubble, I guess. I know it exists. I know that, um, you know, there are people that have those those feelings. So, you know, luckily, Hickory Apache people, let's go with this. Hickory Apache people have been hunters forever, right? It's part of their being. Um, it's part of, in the old days, it was absolutely tied to their survival and, you know, economy and you name it. So... Super important to keep those things alive, right? Uh, for a variety of reasons, for culture, for heritage, for um, for for a lot of those purposes. Um, to me, hunting is uh, a management tool. You know, it's a realistic approach to what is happening on the landscape, modern day landscape. If you don't hunt, a lot of times you have habitats that are out of whack. You have, you know, you know. Uh, things that that are uh, um, uh, avoidable, you know. In the old days, maybe before the landscape 
became fragmented in cities and highways and, you know, airports, et cetera, you know, maybe things were more simplistic. They're not. It's a very complex landscape. Hunting is a huge tool uh, for managers to make sure that we are um, in tune with the landscape. I think that's probably the, the foundation for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would say you know, let's, let's, let's keep the conversation based on facts, not emotion. Mm-hmm. I think that's also something that, um, you know, if it's if things are grounded in facts, then the emotional side of of hunting and you know, it, it, to me, like I said earlier, hunting is a it's it's an act, it's a it's a ritual, it's something that is grounded in respect for the land, for the for the animal. You know, it, it, you're using the animal to. Uh, uh, to feed your family, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing, but you know, that's a hard question for someone like me because I'm not, you know, it, it's a foreign thing. It's something that I grew up with. Yeah. Um, something that, you know, that I, that I hold very close. Um, you know, my circle, the people around me, you know, I don't, I don't think they're all hunters, but we all understand, you know, and, and uh, respect and admire uh, the resource for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't it's know if t- that's is a tough one for you. But there's a lot of people that have your passion for hunting that aren't in the position you are, aren't as comfortable as you are, and are living like you know. In uh, let's say you know you've got a hunter that's just as passionate as you that lives in Seattle or lives in Portland or, you know, on the outskirts of uh, Portland or even in Yakima Valley out in the rural area, those decisions for the state of Washington are made for the state. And so uh, they're battling against, you know, a lot of people who are making decisions against the facts. You know, the, the biologists are, are, they've put down the numbers and they've, they've said what you said, here's the management uh, strategy and this is what needs to happen in order to make this a viable landscape for these animals. And still yet, they're still making decisions against the scientists, the people who know things. So it's, I know it's hard for you, but it's, you think about that guy or girl or whoever that's that's living out there that's just as passionate and is getting their hunting opportunities taken away um, and doesn't have any control over it, you know? That's why I, I, I like posing that question because I like to hear what people have to say about it. And, and you say what a lot of people would have said, let's ground it in facts. Let's not talk about emotion because, I mean, everybody's going to have emotion, you know, for whatever. But if you ground it in facts, it's black and white and it says that this number needs to be removed. And hunting is a good tool to do that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a, it's, a real, it's a tough question for a lot of people who, um, you know, who are living in those environments where things are, are starting to change. And the state of Washington is one of them, you know, so tough one. Yeah, definitely. I hear like, uh, I listen, do, you listen to, do you listen to any podcasts? Do you listen to like um, Fresh Tracks, Randy Newberg? Or- oh, I've been, uh, I've been... Uh, Putting the meat eater trivia on, so oh, yeah, been, yeah, a lot of that stuff yeah. happened. I like them a lot commute. too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Randy Newberg has had a a series lately where he's speaking with people about. He always brings up Washington, and man, when I listen to a lot of the stuff that's going on with Washington and their commission, and man, it's scary. 
Because if it, if, and what he's trying to do and what they're trying to do, the people he brings on to talk about it is try to stop it or slow it down or get people to see and, you know, just trying to be advocates of, okay, at least see our side. And, it, and it's, man, the more I listen, the more I get scared about it. But my circles are your circles. I talk, I, I, I like being around hunters and people who are, who are like to be outside. I don't, I'm not in downtown Seattle where somebody's like, uh, you know, member of PETA and, you know, wants to take hunting away. But when I do see the power that they have with, you know, in politics and, um, you know, attorneys and that kind of thing, that, that they can make those, those laws um, against an actual biologist who knows the science is scary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a scary thing. So, yeah, that, that's a real tough one. But yeah, thanks for that. That's uh, you know, I like that you said that. It's uh, you know, try to you try to ground it in facts, but you know, even though the facts are on the table, sometimes the uh, emotion wins out. Believe it or not. Yeah. No. Sad but true. Well, yeah. That, I'll, yeah. I'll stick to my circle, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, another part of that, though, too, I like to hear is when people when you talk about uh, or when a hunter talks about how away from the facts for a minute, just how hunting itself makes you a better person, you know, how making those decisions out there, whether it's with your family or by yourself, uh, kind of makes you better, if that makes sense. You know, and I've, I've said this a lot too. And like you, you're out there by yourself. You could make a good or bad decision. You could make a terrible decision like a poacher would make, or you could make a really good decision wanting to do something and not doing it because you know that it's wrong. Sure. Right. And that, like you said, those, those kinds of things. It's an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And especially with kids too. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing tool for children uh, to take children out there and and show them what's right or wrong. You know, Uh, a child might look at a big old buck and, you know, want to be like his dad and just pull up a gun and shoot it. And then you got to say, Hey, you either you don't have a tag for that, or this is why we're not going to do that right now. You sure. know, so. no, I, absolutely. It's it's an opportunity. Like I said, it's an opportunity to to learn and grow. And uh, you know, whether you harvest one or not, just the actual act of being out there is is a tremendous opportunity, especially for youth in my mind. But really, anyone, if you're approaching it with the right mindset, to to be respectful for one and to uh, be a good uh, steward of the land. And like you said, you know, make decisions right or wrong. And, you know, I I think every hunt probably has that dichotomy of, you know, if I make this decision, I'm going this way. And, you know, uh, making good decisions is a, is a life skill for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a late onset hunter and I've noticed that it's taught me a lot, especially being out there by myself, taught me quite a bit on, uh, you know, what's a good decision versus a a bad decision, a far shot, wind blowing, you know, knowing that you could shoot, but what are the odds of you missing given the the distance and or, you know, where they are, uh, how they're quartered, you know, are you going to pull that trigger? You know, sure. So, yeah, but I, it's I there's nothing that that uh, equals that that I've that I've come in contact with in my life other than hunting, man. You know, so. But uh, um, you're you talked a little bit about your family. You got four young boys. I do. Uh, are any yep. of them old enough to hunt yet? Or 
Yes, my older two are are uh, hunters. I guess. I mean, that uh, new um, last week. Uh, my second born son, Trent, we went on a cow hunt and he was successful last year. We went on the same hunt and, uh, we had a great time and, um, we learned a lot and we ended up getting one, you know, at very last light, but, you know, trying to see him grow and, and, uh, as a young man and, uh, as a hunter and, you know, it's a really cool thing for a father to do. Um, and then my oldest son, um, last year went on his first buck hunt and, you know, he's had two pretty slam dunk easy buck hunts. Um, That's good. You know, and, in and a way, <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, it is, and I, we're grateful no matter what, whether we harvest or not. We're we're grateful for the opportunity. But um, you know, I, I keep telling him, and, and like you know, son, this is uh this is abnormal. You know, you've been lucky, and um, you know, I I also, I guess I'm ready for. A, take him on a more challenging hunt and, and, uh, you know, see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you haven't hunted yet that you want to do or, or any places that you want to go? Um, you know, I, I'm a North America guy, so, uh, you know, Africa doesn't really interest me, I guess. Is Me either. So, uh, I like to keep it close to home. Um, last year, you know, I went on a bighorn sheep hunt. It was sort of a pinnacle for me, you know, that I drew a, a tag in Colorado. Um, I'd love to do the mountain goats, you know, some of those high country, yeah. do it while you can type hunts, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, I don't want to be 70 years old up there and not be able to do it justice, right? Yeah. So, or not enjoy it. So, you know, anything like that, ad- adventure hunts, new country, you know, to me it's not really... Uh, it's more about a new adventure, you know, a species that takes me to a new place, mm-hmm. something I haven't seen, a new challenge, you know. And like I said, whether or not I get one, that to me these days is sort of um, what makes me tick, you know. Yeah. Um, have you have you hunted Hawaii yet? Never been to Hawaii. Oh, man, it's great. I, I keep hearing I had access deer the other day, and it was fantastic. So I think I might have to do yeah. that. Yeah, know? yeah. I'm um, going for Christmas again. Um, I'll be with Shiloh. Remember, That's great. we were talking yeah. about Shiloh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, shout out to Shiloh. We'll tell Shiloh. I'll tell him when when I see him that you like this podcast. Yeah. No, I like Shiloh's podcast. That was cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm lucky enough to go this Christmas, and that's going to be real fun. Um, yeah, the the table fair is it's so mild. It's such a good meat, man. I can't. I just yeah. can't say enough about it. I, I marinated. You know, I was like, well, I'll do a, a kind of a light marinade, and it didn't need it. it you know, it's yeah. just good by itself, but. Um, I've always wanted to do Alaska. I think I've, I've done Alaska, but you know, do more in Alaska. I think mm. That'd be fun. What have you done there so far? Uh, Sitka blacktail. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, that there are a lot. There's a lot of blacktail there. Um, there's not a lot of elk, right? Or is there? There, there are in islands. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Those would be rosies, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Roosevelt. Yeah, Roosevelt. Yeah, and they, they were introduced to some of the islands, like Raspberry Island. And uh, anyway, you know, that would be that'd be a unique experience. But I'm I'm more along the lines of you know a doll sheep or a moose or you know yeah moose. caribou. Yeah. Cool. You know anything about Maine? No, Maine is awesome, man. I didn't think it'd be so awesome. Like I just went to do a podcast. And I've been back three times since. 
That's cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Good people too. Like the hunting, the hunting culture there is so much different than. Uh, I mean, again, I'm late onset, so I've only been doing it like maybe five, six years. But uh, their hunting culture is more about just putting meat on the table, you know, and getting your moose. It's not so much as how many inches. It's sure. just like family affair, and yeah, it's it's just part of their. It's like ingrained in their culture. Hunting is, and it's moose is big there. Uh, black bears big there and they're deer deers everywhere it's a green state it's just like yeah you know it's like being in washington it's just lobsters green. too right that's right that's right lobsters too that's a big that's a big deal there and they're on the coast but yeah man if you ever get a chance to go to maine to do moose it's that's amazing amazing stuff and good and good people up there yeah i'd like to do alaska I think Alaska. Would you do brown bear? Would you be interested in that or not really? No, I'm a I'm an antler guy, you know. But part of what makes me tick again is just the, uh, you know, antler uh, growth and that cycle. Like it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, you know, caribou. Oh yeah, caribou. You know, a moose. You know that type of thing. You know, I, I love sheep too. So you know, definitely not antlers, but still really cool top yeah. of the world type thing but yeah just antlers in itself are just they, they've always fascinated me yeah could you touch i know earlier you talked about the migration and some of the challenges that you've had could you touch on um or just maybe explain the migration in this area not just the hickoria but if you know anything about the migration in the, the lower 48 for mule deer specifically um i don't know I'll stick to Hickory. I know a little bit about other areas, but, you know, let's just start with why animals migrate, you know, what, what sort of life strategy and what are they, what are the trade-offs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So for an elk or a deer, and that's, you know, the stuff that around here that will migrate, you know, in, in other parts of the world, other species obviously will do it. But really, I think migration promotes abundance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the seasonal use of ranges that, are not used during one portion of the year uh, allows the population as a whole to be a little more diverse for one, but also more abundant. So in this landscape where we have the San Juan mountains within eye reach, you know, uh, definitely off the reservation, but a huge part of what makes elk and deer tick here. Um, so I guess the benefit of uh, an elk or a deer that would migrate from Hickoria winter ranges to high country summer ranges, um, San, lower San Juan Mountains would be, you know, there's uh, a lot more resilience at elevation to things like drought. Mm. Um, you know, some of that habitat up there is uh, snow-capped and, uh, you know, just nothing's going to live up there in February. So when that thaws off, you know, it's lush, it's green, it's beautiful, yeah. it's very remote, very low disturbance. Um, you can have a fawn there or, or a calf there and, you know, kind of build up fat reserves that will help you uh, get through winter. You know, uh, fat is money, essentially, in an elk or a deer. So, you know, the fatter, the better. Mm-hmm. So um, better nutrition, you know, all that sort of stuff. So trade-offs are you have to move. You know, in some cases, 60 plus miles is what we're finding out across a very uh, becoming more and more complex and challenging landscape. Uh, It's becoming more fragmented. 
uh, getting a lot more traffic volumes on the roads around here. Everyone wants to live in this area, it seems to, to be. Uh, um, you know, some of these big ranches that have been intact forever or, you know, have been subdivided into smaller tracks. Mm-hmm. With that comes the barking dogs and the fences and the, you know, new roads and the disturbances that just don't bode well for elk or deer. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's the trade-off. And, you know, to me, it's it's a really cool phenomenon that we all need to understand and try to protect. You know, galvanizing this corridor or these corridors that that allow these animals to freely move back and forth is really tied to the health of the species in itself. So if we don't, we will start to see impacts uh, to elk and deer. Mm. There's no doubt about it. Not all elk and deer migrate. You know, it's also important to kind of keep that in mind. Some some would be considered, uh, you know, a resident, so to speak, of, of the reservation. Um, you know, some of them might only migrate when they have to. Um, so on and so forth. You know, the difference between an elk and a deer is an elk is pretty uh, highly adaptable through, you know, the the foraging strategies and life histories and all that sort of stuff. A deer is very loyal to its routes, very loyal to its uh, winter ranges, its home ranges. If they don't migrate, they're super loyal to uh, that one square mile that they've always known. Really? So any cha- challenges or changes, you know, abrupt changes, uh, an elk can seem to navigate a little bit better than a deer could. Again, leading to sort of the challenges mule deer have been facing across the West. Um, so, you know, keeping in mind that, uh, you know, for example, we had a caller doe. I wish I remembered her number. I would I would just call her that number. But caller doe, southern end of the reservation, uh, bad drought hit 2018, I believe. Um, one of the worst droughts on record. Really hot summer. Mm-hmm. No precip, you know, that winter. You know, these seasonal droughts have been really challenging. Anyway, the spring that she had grown up with, right? So most of the time they learn this from their mom. So the doe that raised the fawn, that fawn is going to do whatever mama did. Mm. So... Um, this doe that we had collared, the spring dries up, right? And all of her data points were within a one square mile surrounding this one water source. Um, water source goes dry. She starts ping-ponging across the landscape, and in five days she's dead. We get a mortality signal. And we couldn't quite figure it out until we went back to that area and realized that her water source had been dried up. In that process of ping-ponging across the landscape, she'd crossed other water sources, you know, within sight distance and just didn't put it together that, you know, maybe this is somewhere that I should try to, you know, hang out and, and make a living. Wow. You know, they lack that ability to, to change or to adapt to abrupt challenges on the landscape. So, um, you They're know... They're that habitual. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, whereas an elk, you know, I think they would be fine. They just keep moving. I see. Um, same thing with migration, you know, back to the migration corridor. So if mama took her out, you know, and, and taught her fawn to do that, uh, research throughout the West has said that fawn's going to do the same thing and her progeny are also going to follow whatever she did. Mm-hmm. So if uh, we start losing these migration corridors, 
we're losing essentially a component of a population that's done, that's made a living on this landscape forever. Mm. Um, they're, they're teaching us how they use the landscape. The data that we collect teaches us how they, it gives them a voice, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, how are they using this? And, and uh, you know, we have to pay attention, you know, and, and try to protect, you know, corridors and make sure that we don't make it any worse, you know. That's fascinating, Kyle. So are you, um, can, once they go off the reservation, are you, do you have good communication with the state on, you know, things that you're seeing and saying, hey, um, what the state has done here or this, the sale of this land or this ranch or whatever has really got in the middle of this migration corridor? What can we do? to change this or get this back to where, um, you know, the deer are, um, are used to this, uh, migration corridor. Does that make sense? Sure. No, I, I mean, as soon as they leave our jurisdiction and this is the thing, wildlife don't care about borders, right? They're, they're yeah. teaching us how to, uh, maybe play together in the sandbox. Yeah. So to speak. I guess so. Yeah. You know, the umbrella in my mind is migration and that is forcing us to look across the fence and say, how can we become better neighbors? Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I'm always trying to improve communication. I'm trying to share what we know because it benefits a resource that we care dearly about. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, migration data is is what we offer. I see. You know, we're, we're, we've collected this since the 80s. It's a strong data set. We know a lot about migration for this region. It's something that we're constantly trying to add to. You know, we have... 30 more callers on order. Uh, we have 30 out right now. Um, monitoring any new information, trying to figure out, you know, what what happens if they take this route or what happens for a summer uh, resident of the reservation? Are they leaving the reservation to our southwest? You know, there's a lot of patterns and, and things that are happening here that we've documented for 30 plus years. Um, you know, sharing that with the the right people is, is super important. So yes, we, 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 uh, we're looking across the fence, particularly up to the Northeast of where we sit today saying, you know, what happens up there matters, you know, if, if, uh, we care about elk and deer. I see. And not, uh, not knowing that, that uh, geographic, I'm looking at the map here. You're talking about, a, uh, not just New Mexico, you're talking about Colorado, of it's course. It's super complex, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a cool thing, you know. Um, like I said, wildlife don't care. You know, if it's CPW or New Mexico Department of Game and Fish or Hickory of Game and Fish, they, don't, you know, they could care less. But yeah, as managers, we should care. Sure. We, should, we should get on the same page. So, you know, there, uh, there's been efforts and there's been uh, organized. Uh, we have a meeting every year, San Juan Interstate Wildlife Working Group that invites all of those key players and we try to share as much information as possible. And, you know, what we're finding is, you know, it's a good thing. I think that's a, a powerful meeting that has a lot of potential. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of hurdles within each jurisdiction, you know, and challenges. But, you know, that doesn't mean we stop. I'll never stop advocating for, for uh, migration corridors. Right. And protecting them and making sure that, uh, um, you know, we do everything in our power to, to try to minimize some of these effects that, that have already happened, mm -hmm. um, uh, especially for 
you know, a resource that we all share, essentially. Absolutely. Are you um, in contact or good communication with, like, I don't know, the Mule Deer Foundation or <clears throat> even states north of Colorado or, like, let's say Wyoming or uh, Montana? And, and do you guys share data with those states as well or not really? No, there's no need to, you know, none of our elk go to Wyoming or Montana. So, um, but, but their their information uh, be similar? Uh, I'm constantly reading literature and calling folks from uh, Wyoming. My brother works for Game and Fish in Wyoming. We're constantly trying to, uh, you know, projects that they're doing or how they tackled a certain issue or, mm-hmm. you know, again, that's a whole state. You know, this is, you know, yeah, we're fairly small. Yeah, you know, we're like a subunit in a state, in a state's uh, uh, management scheme. You know, yeah. in Korea, is there a is there a, uh, uh, a a mule deer godfather, so to speak, like somebody who you're like, uh, somebody who you hear their name and they're like, oh yeah, that guy's like a he's a he's a guru when it comes to you know uh, mule deer management or elk management. Nah, I, I mean, there's a lot of guys that I that I really look up to. Um, I think what makes a good mule deer manager or even an elk manager is someone that knows their particular area, yeah, inside and out, and knows the challenges and addresses challenges proactively, right? Not yeah. reactively. That's super important. I mean, you have to be able to kind of foresee some challenges that are coming down the road. So that's what makes a good mule deer manager. I have a lot of folks that I admire, um, you know, in the research world. Um, someone that has helped uh, me in particular with kind of wrapping my mind around some of these data sets and helping, you know, with questions and, you know, tech questions or whatever. Uh, Hall Sawyer out of Wyoming has been just amazing. And he's, in my mind, one of the best. Um, but, I mean, I, not to sh- shortchange some of these other guys that are doing incredible work. I know it. I know all over the West, it's happening. A lot mm-hmm. of people care about mule deer. A lot of people um, um, of similar, you know, responsibilities that I do, you know, have similar concerns. But really, the, it's a site-specific thing. You have to understand. You have to... What makes you good is is uh, solving problems, mm-hmm. often with a limited budget, doing more with less, you know. Yeah. Your relationship with the state, I would think, is is good as well. To me, it's all about interpersonal relationships. So I'm, we're working on it, you know. In this, in the state of New Mexico and Hickory, have had sort of a rocky past, and that's the past. I see. So um, I'm not going to look back. I'll we'll, move forward. Yeah, we'll move forward. Yeah. Uh, the folks in Santa Fe now, you know, I know, uh, you know, some of those key folks, and they're great. You know, we can pick up a pick up the phone and talk. I don't, I don't know if that was the case 20 years ago. So, mm. but, um, you know, we, this department advocates for sovereignty. That's something that's very important to us. And, uh, you know, I think the more that we chat about some of our issues and, you know, uh, I think it helps in my opinion to have uh, a colleague on the other side, you know, on the state side that, that we can, uh, pick up the phone and talk whether you agree or disagree or, you know. Sure. Yeah. That communication good. Yeah. When I mentioned you and, you know, Nicole was, you know, she piped up and, you know, and Oren too, like they're, 
you know, I don't know what your relationship is with them, but sitting down with them, they seem, uh, you know, like amazing people that care. And, you know, so uh, everybody who I've talked to who's in this space, you know, they usually in their position, once they've got to their position, they've been around. And so they uh, they're kind of uh, seasoned, if you will. And they um, you can just feel that passion, just like with you over the phone. Like I was telling you, I was like, man, you can feel your passion over the phone for wildlife. It's great to know that there's people like you and Oren and Nicole and like in charge of uh, our, our our big game, our, our management of, of wild places. It's uh, a lot of people don't. There's a lot. I'm sure a lot of hunters out there don't get to talk with you guys. But just from talking with you, it makes me happy to know you know being out there i'm like there's we have hunting advocates out there people who really care about this landscape that are in offices you know in santa fe and here in hickory so it's it's good to know it's awesome so uh we're at one an hour and 15 minutes in kyle what is there anything else that you feel like uh, you'd like the public to know about the hickory and um what your what your goals are just anything else about uh, your organization yeah, uh, well, we've covered a lot. And, we have. You know, uh, what I would say is, um, you know, look us up if someone's not familiar. And I, I don't know, your, your listeners, I'm sure, are a diverse group from all over the the country or world, probably, right? Yeah, well, the world now, man. Um, it's crazy just to see people like in cool. India listening. <laughs> it's just, cool. just interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a really cool place. It's a very unique place. And for reasons that we discussed and a whole bunch of reasons that, you know, that just make this place unique. Um, you know, Hickory Apache culture, really cool thing. But what I would say is is start with our website if someone is looking for more information on what we're talking about. Um, I'm always, you know, open for conversations if someone has is is interested in coming hunting here that's part of my role is i'll answer some of the questions and um you know the like i said what makes this place unique is the landscape what we try to achieve here from a wildlife perspective but also the people i think that's uh, uh a lot of our hunters that come here from you know wherever they're from you know they come here and they they leave with this sort of uh, understanding and gratitude. You know, Hickory Apache people, their guide was fantastic. They're, you know, they, they learned something new about the culture. Um, you know, it, it's a really cool thing in itself. It's unique. Um, you know, if you were to come here hunting, you're hunting with some of the best hunters in the world. You know, it, it's in their blood. They've been doing it forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's... Uh, Anyway, you know, that's that's what I would say is, you know, the next step if someone's interested in hunting, if something's, you know, interested in more along the lines of what we do on the conservation side of things, you know, like I said, we sort of hold that stuff tight. We just get to work. We don't have a huge department. We just, uh, we keep moving, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm always open for more conversation or that's great someone has questions yeah Yeah, and they can just call the hickory game and fish and then they can uh ask for you uh kyle tater or um just get on the website and kind of surf around and they can get whether it's pricing or seasons and that kind of thing there's a lot of information there sure uh you know another thing that makes us unique is we set our proclamations every year and you know uh, in the next two weeks we're going to be flying surveys so 
what they would be looking at this year, proclamation-wise, is is uh, or, or the document they would download now would be this season, this year. I see. So, you know, if there's someone that has interest in coming maybe later down the road, wait till February or March when all the data is collected and analyzed and we have a, a good feel for next year's proclamation. Gotcha, gotcha. You're... Um we didn't really touch on this, but it, I get the, the the feeling that things are good here. You're healthy. You have a healthy herd or uh, um, population of both, you know, mule deer and elk and uh, whatever else is on that, whatever other big game is on the website for for hunting purposes. Yeah, I mean, we like I said, that's that's definitely our objective is to make sure there's health, right? Um, some factors outside of control are things like drought. We've had sort of unprecedented drought events in the last five years. Mm-hmm. Seasonal droughts, you know, snow droughts, extreme temperatures, and that's made, uh, that's created a slew of really interesting yet extremely challenging events uh, for elk and deer. That doesn't mean that our hunting is bad or, uh, you know, that, that there are challenges outside of our control. It's just, it's a, it's a shrink, you know, population shrink, they swell. It's something that fascinates me to understand and to manage for and around. So, um, you know, but yeah, as far as healthy populations, absolutely. We have lots of elk, lots of deer, you know, lots of um, turkey, mountain lion. Oh, turkey. Okay. You know, mountain lion too. Black good. bears. Uh you know, we have we sell waterfowl licenses. We have quite the variety of hunts. Um, you know, in the old days, it was dubbed uh, a sportsman's paradise, and we have some old, you know, brochures that that that's what it was called. And I thought that was pretty fitting. You know, some uh, some of our hunters have other names for us, but um, <laughs> they're all. They're all fun and positive, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Fantasy land. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What did one guy call me? Uh, He said, man, that was was like a mule deer Disneyland. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, And the proper spelling of hickoria. Sure. Yeah, that might be complicated. Um, J-I-C-A-R-I-L-L-A, hickoria. Right, yeah, because somebody who doesn't know, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who listen who know because they'll see Hickory and be like, oh, I want to listen to that. But people who don't know, they um, they put an H, you know, they sure. spell Hickory. Or a Y. Yeah. Hickory, right. <laughs> Hickory, yeah. Yeah, and there's a ton of videos on YouTube, too, for, like, mule deer hunts that I've seen and just amazing, really, really amazing stuff from way back in the day, too. Sure. So you have the... Good population here, good reputation. Just from coming here, everybody's been real kind. And just coming into the office and seeing, uh, you know, the years of trophies and uh, just amazing, amazing animals that you have here. Uh, I'm pretty blown away, man. I really appreciate you, you know, letting me come in and and chat with you. I also want to thank the tribal members who allowed this too. Uh, I don't know if it was a counselor. I know it was the president was the last person to approve it. Right. Anytime that we do some of these bigger mass media events, we want to make sure that, that our leadership is aware. And um, like I said, we, we have support and um, we, we made uh, president Velarde aware of, of our effort, you know, wanted to thank him. Yeah. To thank him. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. 
to him and, uh, and, and all those who approved it. And uh, thank you, Kyle. I appreciate it. And um, hopefully we get a chance to speak with Bernard at some point and uh, get more of, like we talked about, get more of a cultural side of things and, and have him chat about that. But uh, this has been really productive and um, been, we've been wanting to do it. I've been wanting to do it for a while and I appreciate you sitting down, man. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Okay. Hope, hope to speak with you again soon. Yep. Okay.